Welcome to the Indisposable Podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? As you might have heard by now, Upstream and Closed Loop Partners are bringing the Reusies back this year. The Reusies is a groundbreaking awards program honoring changemakers developing a better way than throwaway, advancing systemic change, and co-creating a world where we can get what we need and want without all the waste. We received hundreds of nominations and narrowed them down to just a few finalists across seven award categories. Honors to be awarded during the show include Most Innovative Reuse Company, Corporate Initiative of the Year, Activist of the Year, and Reuse Community of the Year. Now, it's time for you to go vote. Head to thereusies.org to cast your votes and save your spot at the second annual Reuse Awards, which will be live-streamed on Thursday, September 29th. Tickets are free, and a limited number of VIP packages are available for purchase, which come with amazing perks. And that's not all. This year, all ticket holders are automatically entered to win a Gibson Hummingbird guitar, valued at $3,999, generously donated by our partner, Gibson Gives. So don't wait. Vote, register, and learn more at thereusies.org. That's T-H-E-R-E-U-S-I-E-S dot org. Can't wait to see you there. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? Welcome back to the Indisposable Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Prindeville, CEO and Chief Solutioneer at Upstream. And today, I'm very excited to have GreenBiz's John Schmea and Suze Oki on the show. GreenBiz Group is a media and events company that's working to accelerate a just transition to a clean economy. Not only do they do cutting-edge journalism at the intersection of business technology and sustainability, they also organize incredible events that bring together business, nonprofit, and government leaders to learn, network, and catalyze new opportunities. One of those events is their Signature Circularity Conference, which I attended in Atlanta this last spring. And I found that unlike a lot of other sustainability conferences that I've been attending, which seem to be declining in interest and participation, GreenBiz puts on such a great show that the event sold out even during the pandemic. One of the truly surprising shifts that I saw at Circularity this year was a theme from leaders across different sectors that Band-Aid ideas aren't going to work. You know, we need systems change. And the landscape truly feels different now than at any time during my 20-year career of working on these issues, which is why I'm so excited to dive in and welcome Suze and John to the show. It's great to have you both here. Thanks for having us. Awesome to be here, Matt. So I, I always like to start with your personal journey and, and you know, these, these when, were, when did you become interested in sustainability issues? And Suze, let's start with you. I, I saw from your background that you have an MBA with a focus in design strategy. You know, were you thinking about a career in sustainability while you were in grad school? Yeah, I um, kind of came to my career in sustainability um, in an unconventional path. My background is actually in the arts. I worked in um, art museums in New York City before I um, came to work at GreenBiz. And um, I think I've always cared about sustainability. I've always been a big outdoorsy person. Um, and it's always been kind of in my blood. Uh, my my grandmother brought the first recycling system to our, to our hometown. And my mom was part <laughs> of making Earth Day, the first Earth Day in New York City happen. So um, very much... Uh, part of how, how I was raised. And I was went pursued this MBA with the intention of kind of shifting because I wanted to get into sustainability and because I wanted to have a greater impact and specifically decided to get an MBA because I believe corporations and businesses have kind of an outsized opportunity to create dramatic change in, in this environment. Um, so that's really what the aspiration was there when I, when I pursued that degree. Amazing. And and John, you're a PhD chemist, and I saw that you've held multiple design and sustainability positions at several big companies. I mean, were you thinking about saving the planet when you were working on your PhD? Uh, Yes and no. I sort of fell backwards into this. Um, I I started college as a pre-med and and quickly realized that I was not a fan of biology classes. Uh, And so I I had to pivot, uh, switch to chemistry, 
you know, one of those classic cases of I finished my undergraduate degree and I was like, I still don't know what I want to do. Uh, so I went to grad school and I would not recommend going to grad school because you don't know what you'd want to do. <laughs> it's a really, really poor move. Uh, but I made it through. Um, and my, my graduate research was actually uh, designing electrocatalysts to try to convert water and, C- water and CO2 back into liquid fuels, right? So closing that liquid fuel cycle that we've been using for the last hundred years in, in our cars. Um, and I got interested in climate change through that. And one thing led to another and, and, uh, realized I didn't want to work in a lab anymore. So ended up in corporate sustainability, uh, did that for about nine years before joining GreenBiz. Amazing. Yeah. And so I know we've got a sophisticated audience, but for those who don't know GreenBiz, can you tell a little bit about the company and, and, and specifically your, your work on the circular economy and, and John, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think you did a really good job teeing it up, Matt. We we really are a media and events company that is working to accelerate the just transition to a clean economy. And the way that sort of manifests for us is we operate in four different markets, really. There's there's the circular economy or the circularity market that, that uh, Susan and I are involved in. But then we also serve the profession of sustainability. So the folks that are leading sustainability teams at their own companies. Uh, the clean tech community. So as we think about EVs and renewable energy and all the things that go along with that. And then also the green finance community, um, which is a newer space for us. Um, and so, you know, GreenBiz does that, that support, that work through our annual conferences, um, both in-person and virtual conferences, our editorial coverage uh, on our website and through our weekly newsletters. Um, we also, you know, as analysts at at GreenBiz, we go to other forums as speakers, moderators, attendees, and inject ourselves that way. And then third, uh, you know, we're building, we've had this GreenBiz executive network for a long time for sustainability professionals, and we're starting to build out some other peer-to-peer learning networks for, for folks doing this work at their companies. So that's sort of the, uh, the bulk of the universe of what we do at GreenBiz, I guess. That's fantastic. And, and Suze, do you want to talk a little bit about the Circularity Conference, which you guys design and, and build that's really focused on this topic? Yeah. Um, so Circularity is relatively new. It was originally launched in 2019. Um, and of course, we um, had to pivot to a virtual setting for 2020 and 2021. So we've definitely gone through an interesting few years together. But um, <laughs> what we've seen is uh, the focus and interest in this area has just exploded. Um, we're continually getting more and more attendees and people interested and curious around what does a circular economy mean and what does it mean for my organization? Um, we, as you mentioned, you joined us in Atlanta. Uh, we had a sold out event, which was fantastic. Over 200 speakers, um, 50 sessions, bunch of really incredible main stage content trying to um, really accelerate the transition to a circular economy. And our kind of theory of change is really how can we bring um, leaders across industries and create those kind of nodes, those interconnections to create shared um, shared learnings, shared best practices, and um, allow people to learn not just from folks in their own industry so that fashion can learn from other fashion folks, but also what can the packaging industry learn from the fashion industry? What can electronics learn um, from from packaging? And there's a lot of cross-pollination and opportunity when you bring a larger community together. And we're going to continue to do that. We've, um, we're hosting our next circularity in Seattle this coming June. Um, and it will be continue to be bigger than, than the year before. And that's the aspiration here, bringing more people into this fold and this community. I, I love it. I love it. You know, I, I was really struck by, I mean, I've been attending sustainability oriented conferences for, for 20 years now. And I, I just was struck by how, how big you guys have gotten. <laughs> and I, I have to imagine too, that the, that the, the pandemic must've been like an existential crisis for an events company that is probably, you know, your business model is tied to people showing up and, and paying, uh, you know, to come to these conferences 
but you guys made it through. You survived, and then your first big, you know, conference on this topic out of the gate, you sell out. I mean, that's that's fantastic. I mean, how 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 did the company navigate <laughs> the the last several years <laughs> of, of trying to get through the pandemic uh, intact? That is. I, it's hard to really fathom how we accomplished it in retrospect, even. Um, but honestly, I, I chalk it up to a really incredible team um, that was able to be exceedingly nimble during that period. Um, we uh, refused to, you know, turn off the show. Uh, uh, you know, the show must go on was kind of the mantra at the time. And um, so we pivoted to an online environment. And uh, particularly in 2020, we decided that we would make it a free conference because we weren't sure what the environment was going to be like and um, wanted to just, you know, expand our fold even more so. Um, And it turned out that, you know, especially when people were locked at home, they were really craving this aspirational idea of what, what we need to be accomplishing right now and thinking about that bigger picture. And we were so afraid that everyone was going to, you know, in crisis mode, want to turn down the the volume dial on these um, other existential issues that we must address. But as it turned out, we found our community was really craving that. Um, so luckily, our our team and our community really kind of continued to step up and show up. Um, so thankfully, we made it through. And um, yeah, now that we're back in person, I think we do see the value of, of meeting in person again, because there is kind of this inherent magic of face-to-face learning and engagement. Um, but there are some really incredible learnings that we had along the way as well. So we're going to continue to try and uh, expand our audience in a virtual setting as well um, and it. continue to adapt and pivot as we need to. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I will say in the three days that I was in Atlanta, I mean, I, I had so missed networking and just the opportunities that emerge from exactly. just being in a conference with all all these incredible people. And and then, you know, t- you're learning and then you're talking and processing that learning, uh, you know, with the folks that were in the, the session with you. I mean, it's such a, you know, as far as just the way that human beings interact and create, like the the conference setting is is really powerful, provided <laughs> that it's organized really well and it's really targeted toward the toward the audience. And I think that's one of the things that you guys do so well. Um, and so, you know, let's dive into the topic here, right? So, uh, you know, let's talk about circularity, John. I, I I recently read a quote from you in one of your articles, which I thought was really great. You said, we need to unlearn much of what we've internalized over the course of the last century to make the progress we need to see. So, you know, thinking about circularity, what what do we need to unlearn? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think, uh, oddly enough, you know, it, it ties to a lot of the work, you know, you're doing it upstream um, and have been for quite a while, right? We have this sort of this internalized feeling that like things that we buy and use are eventually going to become trash, right? Like all of us have grown up with that. And therefore it's it's really hard for us as people to sort of get out of that mindset, right? So when I talk about unlearning, I'm really thinking like, let's sort of, let's sort of throw off the limitations of how we've done things since the industrial revolution and think about the the technology and the design and the creativity that we can use to just sort of start over, right? Like how can we as, and and I sort of looked at it or I look at it from all these different perspectives, right? I mean, I first think as a chemist, because that's how I was trained, right? And, And chemists need to start thinking about, you know, how do we make chemicals safely that can then be, you know, safely degraded or transitioned back into starting materials so we can keep these things in flow. Product designers and engineers need to think about, you know, how can we take these products apart? How can they be manufactured, refurbished, keep the materials in circulation longer? And then, of course, there's the job of the consumer, right, to ask the hard questions of the companies making their products. Um, Having worked in corporate sustainability for nine years, I can say that a single voice from a loud consumer can make a difference. And people obviously, you know, a lot of times they don't realize that. They think, oh, I'm just one person who's going to pay attention. But companies do. And so I think there's a lot of a lot of space here for all of us throughout the value chain to just think about what future we want to see. Um, and, you know, there's there's this, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the 
the Earth Overshoot Day uh, calendar, right? We actually just hit Earth Overshoot Day on July 28th, and that's you know the day when humanity has used all the biological resources that Earth can generate during the entire year. And if you look at the trend since they started calculating this, it's just getting sooner and sooner and sooner. And we really, you know, there's the climate change curve. There's all these curves that we need to bend. That's one of them, right? We need to stop using more than the earth can provide. And it seems like an obvious thing, but I think people have trouble wrapping their heads around it. You know, I, I, that speaks to this idea that, that we've really been trying to drive home at upstream of, of unnecessary overconsumption. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, it's like, let's look at the low-hanging fruit, right? So all of the single-use packaging that we use in food service, in beverage, in the consumer packaged goods and retail sectors, in e-commerce sectors – you know, for us, that's why we're focused there because because we know that there are reusable models that we can do that would dra- dramatically reduce the amount of natural resources that we take from the planet to get people the things that they want and need. And so, one of the things I love about what you guys do, and and it's something that that we're trying to do with our audience and community as well, is is vision painting and showing what the future could look like as opposed to how it is. Because I think that we all get locked into this idea. Well, this is this is just the way things are, and they can't change. You know, I, I for me, I had this like seminal moment um, when I was doing some research for uh, one of the reports that we were writing. I was just curious about like when the first McDonald's drive-through happened because when I was a kid, like you know, we would go to the drive-through like a couple times a week, and it was just such a seminal part of my childhood. Well, I found out that it actually happened the year before I was born, <laughs> and, and I had no idea. I just had assumed that the, the drive-through had always been there, you know, or at least you know, as I got older, at least been there since the '40s or '50s. But Amazing. I think that that was a really, for me, that was a really you know eye-opening experience. And I think for a lot of us, just being able to think about not not the world as it is, but the way it could be. And so, you know, again, getting back to this question of what what do we need to unlearn <laughs> so that we can so that we can actually open up our minds to what what the possibilities are. Suze, what about you? What do you think we need to unlearn? Yeah, well, I think definitely this uh, this decoupling of um, growth from from material extraction absolutely needs to be at the core of how we approach this. But I think um, when I was thinking about this earlier, the the main thing I think we need to unlearn is this kind of siloed approach to our society and our economy. And, um, you know, we have personal goods that we own just ourselves. And in the corporate world, there's this tendency to um, think about proprietary um, success and not wanting to share your internal secrets. And we really absolutely need to do away with that. We need to be thinking about our economy as an ecosystem where materials and goods and services all flow freely between um, organizations between people. Um, and that's definitely going to take a really dramatic shift from the way that we consume and think about things today. But I, if we get back to our more biological roots in that way, um, I think that's the, the ideal future that we need to be working towards. And I truly believe it's possible. Um, what we take for granted is something that's happened often very recently in in societal history. So I think we need to be thinking about what can, we can leapfrog and change for future generations in the way that we interact and engage with each other. Yeah, hundred percent. I I I I think it was uh, Sue Shelton on the main stage at Circularity this last year that was really talking about that. I mean, she basically exhorted this crowd of of corporate sustainability folks to say, "Hey, the world as it is was created by your predecessors, <laughs> and it's up to you to create the you know the world of tomorrow." And I I thought that was a, just a really really powerful idea. And again, I think that's one of the reasons why the work that you guys are doing is just so important to get these ideas out there, get people interacting and connecting with them and, and thinking about how do we do this, not just our individual company, but how do we do this, like you said, Suze, creating this ecosystem and within the ecosystem um, of materials and products. And so, you know, I'd love to dive into trends that that you all are seeing. I mean, you guys really are probably more than almost anybody else out there are, are aware of the trends that are happening around the circular economy uh, in the United States and around the world. And Suze, I recently read an article uh, that you wrote about the three most impactful circular trends for 2022. So what, what are you seeing? 
Yeah, well, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, some of the trends that I'm seeing link quite closely to that article. Um, I think we are a really interesting moment for policy at this moment. Um, EPR, uh, Extended Producer Responsibility, is really taking off in a way that it hasn't in years past. I mean, it was pretty much hitting a brick wall up into a point. And for those that don't know, um, Extended Producer Responsibility is the... Um, case in which uh, organizations that bring packaging into a state or into a country uh, need to pay a fee for the amount that they're bringing in so that it guarantees that there's enough money to actually recycle it or handle it at the end of its life. Um, and for a really long time, organizations um, and corporations were really fighting tooth and nail to make sure that that wasn't happening. But uh, my home state, Maine, um, was the first state in the nation to pass an EPR bill last year. And um, now a couple, I think it was about a month ago, uh, California Pat was the fourth to pass this, this law. Um, and each is a little bit unique in each state. And what we really need to see is them happening across the United States. However, it's a really exciting moment that um, we're kind of seeing a shifting of the tides. Um, you can also see that in the right to repair policy movement. Several states have recently passed protections for consumers to have the right to repair their their products. And I, what I will say is I think that as far as policy is concerned, Europe continues to far surpass the United States and what it's um, what it's doing and what it's capable of uh, of changing. Um, and you can really see the dramatic shifts in the way that companies are actually handling their products and goods in Europe. And that's starting to tr have a ripple effect in the United States. As an example, Apple um, is going to have to redesign their iPhone uh, because the EU has recently passed a law requiring them to have a universal charging port with all other phones and electronics. So we're going to see these ripple effects in the United States, but I think policy has really a fantastic ability to shift the way that our uh, society is working and create the conditions for success for these systems. Um, so I'm hoping that that'll be a trend that we continue to see paths. Um, gosh, I could keep going uh, for hours on end about other trends I'm seeing, but um, I'll just really quickly, uh, resale is like, continues to explode in the apparel space. Um, what excites me about this is that we're seeing major corporations that have really pushed this kind of overconsumption on consumers, this fast fashion approach, are changing their tune in this way and thinking about how they can extend the life of their products and get more value out of them by reselling them. And what I hope to see is that this shift of resale is going to create more opportunities for other new business models for rental services, for more sharing, a more sharing-based economy. I think we're very much on the cusp of that. And I think organizations that are just starting out resale are really only taking the teeniest sliver of the potential um, advantage that these new models could afford. Um, but that's another thing that I'm seeing a lot of. Um, and then your audience will be thrilled to hear. I think reusable packaging to me is also something that I'm constantly keeping an eye on. And one of my personal favorite topics <laughs> in the circular economy space. And we're seeing a lot of really interesting momentum, particularly uh, I want to give a shout out to Seattle, which is um, launching a reuse system across the city. I think I can't wait to see what that's going to look like in operation, because as I mentioned earlier, we need to be thinking about these things on a system level, on an ecosystem level. And when one coffee shop is having reusable cups, that's great but it's not going to work unless an entire uh, community, an entire city offers those reusable cups. And uh, Reuse Seattle is going to pilot and launch that very shortly. Um, so I'm excited to see how that continues to expand and grow. Absolutely. You know, we uh, we had our friends from Reuse Seattle on the podcast just, just a couple of weeks ago. So if folks want to dive deeper into that, you can check out that podcast. We also had our friends, uh, Amy and Claudette from PR3 that was instrumental in creating Reuse Seattle on the podcast a couple months ago. Uh, so so please check them out. Um, 
Yeah, I'm really glad you. Br- I'm really glad you brought up uh, EPR and 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 also our home state of, of Maine, Suze, because uh, one thing you probably don't know about me is that I used to be a, an organizer and uh, I was the legislative director for the Natural Resources Council of Maine here before I joined Upstream, and I worked on EPR legislation for a decade while I was there, and we got the first uh, wow. the first EPR law for electronic waste passed in the country, and then a whole number of other firsts around mercury containing products and and so on. 20 years ago when I was doing this work, I thought I'm like EPR for packaging is right around the corner. <laughs> we were working we were working on an EPR for packaging bill uh, back then and we worked actually my f- previous organization worked really closely with the founders of Upstream because the whole the whole goal of for the creation of Upstream was to bring EPR from Europe to the United States. So that's another thing you guys may not have known, but you know it, it's it's wild to finally see it it happening for packaging. It's really you know it's really exciting and to see. I would say you know I just shared this with my board the other day that like the single biggest shift that's happened over the last couple of years um, in 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 our work world has been the shifting in position from a majority, not just a couple of brands, but a majority of brands in their positions around uh, extended producer responsibility. And also what we're seeing in the beverage industry with shifting their positions uh, around deposit return systems, which we like to think of as kind of the original, the, it's the OG EPR uh, <laughs> for, for, uh, for beverage containers. Um, so just getting you know back in, into trends, uh, John, what, what about you? What, do, what are you seeing out there as far as trends are concerned? Yeah, I, I jotted down a few. One one that I think is really exciting, we heard a lot about at the Circularity Conference this year, is just I- implementing technology, uh, things like machine learning, AI, digital passports, uh, all these things that help us track these products. Um, because, you know, most businesses, they'll say one of their biggest challenges is that once things leave their door, they just don't know what happens to it. And if you have this ability to track products and get them back, then it it can incentivize you to use higher quality materials and make your products more remanufacturable, refurbishable, things like that. So I think the sort of digital shift, uh, and there's some really interesting companies out there doing that work. Uh, another one really is in business models, right? Uh, so many companies, even if it's not yet their core, uh, they're starting to think about sort of everything as a service, right? How do we leave, how do we share? How do we maintain ownership over these things? And that's just another way to, to be able to use higher quality materials, right? If your upfront cost is a little bit higher, but you know it's going to last a lot longer, it makes the calculation a lot easier for, for businesses. Um, and, you know, also serves to decouple growth from extraction, right? So th- that's a really cool trend that we're starting to see. And I, I'd like to see even more of it. Um, and then one that's sort of near and dear to my heart is... All of these new companies uh, and even existing companies that are starting to think about circularity within infrastructure, buildings, uh, durable products, right? It's a it's a very different conversation to think about an aluminum can versus a five story building, right? For circularity, um, we're starting to see it more and more, right? We've got we've got companies popping up that are making modular wall systems that can be moved and changed and set up easily and, and deconstructed. Um, we're seeing things be, you know, more, uh, separable for recycling or remanufacturing. Um, you know, there's companies out there that are supporting their parts now longer, and that's being, you know, that's being, uh, somewhat driven by like 3d printing and some of these like service on demand, uh, technologies that are out there. So that one is one I'm really excited about. Um, and actually we had, uh, um, Michelle Wiseman from the city of Atlanta on our main stage at Circularity. And she said, why do we recycle aluminum cans, but throw away buildings? And it's yeah, just I love that. That, I love such that. an amazing uh, insight that yeah. we need to tackle if we're ever going to get anywhere on this. Um, so those are the three that, that I think about a lot right now. That's so cool. Yeah. And well, it's a great segue into what I was going to start talking around reuse. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're really focused on packaging because of that unnecessary overconsumption idea. Um, and so, you know, in the, the, the work that you guys are doing, you know, what role do you think that reuse plays in creating a circular economy for packaging? And, you know, I'm going to ask you another question, maybe controversial. And do you think it's scalable? <laughs> Uh, the question of the hour. Um, yes, I, I honestly believe that we must shift away from this single use 
economy that we've kind of built uh, in recent decades. And I think packaging is one of the um, most thorniest issues. Unfortunately, I think it's one of the smaller issues as well as we were talking about uh, the can versus the building. Like there are much bigger things that we need to be thinking about reusing. However, um, I honestly believe that reusable packaging is mission critical to us getting to where we need to go as far as shifting away, decoupling from consumption and shifting towards an environment in which we are um, making sure that the, the products in our lives are holding value for as long as they possibly can. Um, the single pennies on the, the piece of plastic packaging that are, or, you know, fractions of pennies that we need to do away with that kind of thinking. And we need to move away from that disposable culture. So I think reusable packaging reuse is going to play an essential role in creating a circular economy for packaging. I think it needs to be a part of our system. I think scaling is going to be exceedingly difficult because, again, we have kind of built an economy around um, siloed industry, siloed organizations, and we need to get much better about sharing um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, what we all try to teach our children and yet somehow as adults, we've forgotten <laughs> ourselves. Um, but I honestly think that the, uh, again, going back to Seattle, what we need to be thinking about is, um, distrib distributed solutions and, um, regional solutions. And I think if we can crack that nut and think about it in a local environment first and kind of allow that to, to grow, um, that is how we will unlock that scaling challenge. So I'm I'm quite hopeful, um, but I think uh, it's not a question of if reuse is going to play a part in the circular economy for packaging. I think that it will be <laughs> mission critical you're, to it. <laughs> you're, you're speaking my you're speaking my love language here, Suze. So I, 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 pre I appreciate appreciate that sentiment, John. What about you? Yeah, I mean it it has to be right. It's, it's really a systems and design flaw that we've got to where we have in the first place, right? Like, I think everybody, everybody recognizes that all the way from, you know, your single use food packaging to, you know, I even think about it in terms of durable products and how they're packaged, right? If I'm, if I'm, you know, in my former life working at a window and door company, the doors and windows should not be packaged in cardboard and polystyrene corners. They should be packaged in something that can be sent back to the manufacturer and reused. Right. And so I think we need to think about this across all parts of the economy. Um, and yeah, we can't, you know, we, we have to think upstream uh, to use your term. You know, we're not going to be able to recycle our way to a sustainable future. So we really have to think about reuse and I agree that scaling is going to be difficult, but, you know, that being said, we're starting to see some, some cool models for that come out, um, especially in like the personal care space, right? Whether it's, whether it's, you know, soap and cleaning ingredients for your home or toothpaste or, or all these things that you can now buy in re reusable packaging. Um, I think we're starting to see that shift and it's just a matter of, can we get there fast enough? Uh, that's yeah. Be Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I I I, I want to lean into to something that you were referencing earlier, Suze, about just the the ecosystem and sharing and so on, and and also just to circle back on EPR. I mean, I think that you know what I what one of the one of the things I, that is just a, a an idea that I keep repeating um, just to help people understand what we're talking about is I, I say you know when I was a kid I'm 45 you know when I was a kid we had we had one bin it was the garbage bin <laughs> and, then, and then we got the recycling bin and now we've got the composting bin um, and and I used to say and in the future we're going to have the reuse bin but as I've been thinking about it more and working more with uh, with the folks that are really thinking about how we do this at scale I also see there's like this extensive infrastructure that already exists that is that we could actually optimize for reuse um, and so let me give you guys guys an example so so in maine Sioux, uh where we live we're a bottle bill state the the biggest redemption center in maine is a company called clink that uses a bag drop system it's a system that we use at at, at my house here uh, my household you put all of our we put all our bottles and cans into the bag take the bag out, slap our a QR code that, that's tied to our account. I drive to the grocery store. There's a kiosk in the parking lot, scan the barcode, drop it in the kiosk, and then it gets picked up and, and sent back to this recycling facility where everything gets separated out and sent for recycling. Right now, they have started to take 
refillable glass dairy bottles. <laughs> so you can actually get your two, three dollar deposit on your refillable dairy. If you live in the greater Portland area, uh, you can throw that bottle right um, in, in the clink bag and and it's going to get sent to the dairies for for washing and sanitizing and refilling. You know, I thought, oh my God, how easy would it be for some of the microbrewers or the, the 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 wineries that we have that are actually continuing to grow and crop up here in Maine, or the cideries, um, to start you know using refillable bottles and then just you know work through the clink system or the deposit return system here uh, to get their bottles back for washing and refilling. And this is something that you know that essentially a brewer in Oregon he actually created a shared refillable uh, bottle system for the Oregon microbrewers several years ago and they're they're in the process of scaling it. I just feel like there are some real opportunities that don't require a whole lot of behavior change on the consumer side and also don't require a ton of, of you know, I mean, it requires some investment and some rethinking on the business side, but there, there's real possibilities that are out there. And as you guys have been talking to people and thinking about infrastructure, what are, what are some of the ideas that, that you're excited about? And, and John, maybe why don't we start with you on this one? Well, I'm going to start by saying that I'm starting to get jealous. I don't live in Maine. I might have to, to move out. <laughs> As you should be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think this is a, a really important question because there's a lot. Some of the some of the infrastructure already exists, right? We already have trucks that come to our neighborhoods every week to pick up trash and recycling and composting, depending on where you live, right? So. There, it's not a new thing to think about being able to do this at scale for a lot of other materials. Um, but, you know, the the reverse logistics, of course, that's that's part of it. Um, but what what we found, uh, at least in my previous roles, is that some of the infrastructure to actually recycle the materials doesn't exist here in the U.S., right? There's not that many glass recycling facilities Um there's even fewer places that will clean and sterilize so that those things can be reused. And so I think, um, you know, I think there's an opportunity uh, nationally, but maybe it starts at these, you know, Seattle reuse and and Portland, apparently Maine is doing a great job <laughs> based on what you guys are talking about. But <laughs> I, I think, I think we need to start, start small and start building that infrastructure for reuse. And then, the other sort of supporting industries like pickup, um, the the sort of reverse logistics side, I think will follow quickly uh, because they're not they're not a stretch of the imagination to think that we could just have one more truck going through our neighborhoods to pick up all the reuse stuff every week. So I think I'm I'm, which is unique for me. I'm pretty hopeful on this front. Like I think I think it can be done, um, but I, I also think it's going to require some 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 regulation, right? Some policy that pushes us towards it faster than companies may be ready for. Yeah, that's a that's a great segue to you, Suze, you know, just going back to the CPR trend, right? Because I was talking to a reporter yesterday on this topic, and I was saying that some of the rationale and reasons that I used to give for why we needed EPR for packaging, like, you know, tax fairness and, and not, you know, not burdening local governments with all this waste that's being created by corporations and so on. All of that stuff is still important. But I feel like the debate hasn't evolved beyond this idea of, optimizing recycling and and fairness for for local governments and like you were saying having having enough money in the system so that we so we have the recycling infrastructure we need you know for us what we really leaned into is how do we make EPR actually be a tool to create a circular economy for packaging that prioritizes the waste reduction hierarchy that that we're, that the prioritization really should be reducing and reusing packaging over recycling and and what we found is that brands are open to that idea at least today <laughs> they're open to that idea but they don't know how to do it and and I think that's something that we're really kind of trying to lean into is is how do we actually you know create the kinds of of conversations and convenings and knowledge space so that we can start to think through like how to actually do that and I'm just curious if, if, if you have th thought about that and the reporting that you've done and the conversations you've had with folks. Yeah, well, I'm getting back to the, the EPR policy. I think it's, um, again, what I mentioned at the top of the conversation is that each state has kind of a different approach to how they're, they're tackling this. But right. the incentive structure that's built into the fees that companies pay at, for, through these EPR policies 
really, I think, can have the ability to unlock some of some of this um, pushing up the waste hierarchy that you're talking about. Um, uh, in Maine, as an example, um, the intent there's a lot of built-in incentives that you will pay less if, as an example, you don't use black plastic because black plastic is notoriously hard to recycle. So. Uh, that is one example. And the, um, the newest California bill um, has a lot more incentives built towards towards reuse. Um, and I think when we start um, kind of putting our, our money where our mouth is a bit in these policies and kind of forcing organizations that are bringing this packaging into the, the state to, to start overpaying for the things that are more disposable, it's going to help shift their their way of thinking. So like John said earlier, I think policy is kind of mission critical to to creating the environment in which we want to see this this shift happen. But again, I'll get back to this kind of this ecosystem idea. I think part of the reason there's such trepidation and concern is that they are thinking about it as an individual organization and like how I can't lift the weight of this, you know, uh, missing infrastructure, this missing uh, system by myself. So I'm going to throw up my hands and say it's impossible to do. And we can't afford we we can't continue to think like that. We really need to be thinking as uh, across our economy, across our society, as a collective, and putting our efforts together to to push up that waste hierarchy as a as a collaborative rather than individual organizations. If I if I could, one thing I'll add uh, for our for our government friends listening, these. <sighs> Sort of state by state and city by city EPR requirements are going to be absolutely brutal for companies to try to manage, right? Uh, One of the things I remember when I was at Steelcase, the office furniture manufacturer, uh, that was when the 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 flame retardants in furniture conversation was starting to change, and we had a law in Boston that required a flammability requirement that you couldn't meet without really toxic flame retardants. And at the same time, you had California making you label to say whether or not your product had flame retardants and you'd be, you'd be preferable if you didn't. Right. And obviously it's impossible to, it's impossible to make two different products for two different markets if you're a national or global manufacturer. And the same is going to be the case for, for these EPR um, laws. And I just hope that, we can trial and error some of these things in the states, figure out what works best, and then really push hard to get that done at the national level, um, because it's just going to be unmanageable for companies if yeah. popping up all over the country. Yeah. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I think what we've seen in, in just looking at at EPR and, and other parts of the world, you know, whether that's Europe or Canada or so on, is that usually there's like an experimentation phase and then there's a harmonization phase. And I think that that you know we're st- we're still very much in the experimentation phase. And you know, our our, our hope is that our our friends uh, in business and nonprofit and government are going to be able to pass kind of the the, the most optimal <laughs> ideas out there and and find out what's going to work here. I mean, I, I think they're, you know, what we've heard from companies a lot is like, hey, what works in Europe isn't going to work here. And I, I think that's a little bit of a cop out. I think some of the things <laughs> that work in Europe mm-hmm. are going to work here. Maybe not everything, but we can certainly learn and apply and, and experiment and, and we're going to figure it out. Um well, just maybe stepping away from your green biz hats and just kind of thinking about yourselves as as folks, as individuals that spend a lot of time thinking and talking about this, you know, let's talk a little bit about just your your own vision, you know, for what you think we need to do to to really achieve circularity. And you know, maybe Suze, uh, I'll start I'll start with you again on this one. Yeah, well, I, I think we've kind of talked about um, several things that I want to uh, not to be too repetitious, but I think this uh, unlearning and shifting away from how we've consumed things in the past is absolutely mission critical. I think that creating an ecosystem across our society, uh, and I think getting a lot more comfortable um, talking across organizations and talking and sharing with even our our neighbors and those around us Mm -hmm. is going to be a big part of how we get there. Um, Are you finding that that this, you know, circular economy idea is, is actually getting out beyond kind of the, the corporate boardrooms and, uh, you know, NGO government policy conversations? 
Uh, I don't know that it's quite caught on on the consumer level yet. I think that, you know, things like um, recycling and uh, like pieces of the equation are, are starting to get picked up. Um, but part of the challenge here is that the circular economy requires a heck of a lot of nuance and complexity. And uh, we, as uh, <laughs> the simple creatures that we are, like simple answers and simple solutions. So we like binary and, you know, this option is better than that option. And unfortunately, when you go, say, into a grocery store or you're going to, to buy whatever product you're going to buy, you know, the wash of uh, eco-friendly, eco-labels, it just gets exceedingly confusing. And uh, I think that's an interesting not to get too derailed here, but it's an interesting conversation I have often have with my friends around, you know, they come to me saying, you know, like, oh, I, I'm really excited. I got this, you know, eco-friendly uh, organic cotton t-shirt. And how great is that? It's, you know, says it's eco-friendly on the label. And I have to, I said, to, well, like, let's have a like more nuanced conversation around like what, you know, is this actually what the best solution is? Maybe depending on what parameters you're using. And then, you know, it gets way too jargon heavy and they start losing me. <laughs> but <laughs> so I think the complexity part is something that we're also going to have to come uh, overcome. And um, I'll just say really quickly, I think I hear a lot from organizations that that's you know the one of the hardest parts is this uh how do we the the consumer doesn't understand or it's not what the consumer wants or uh shifting the consumer behavior is going to be um you know an insurmountable challenge and one i think to your point earlier there are a lot of simple ways that we can tap into the way that consumers operate now without changing things too dramatically uh at the at the organizational and systems level and two these corporations have billions of dollars that they spend on marketing each year to convince people to use products and services a certain way and to think about and have an emotional connection to the things that we purchase. So I refuse to believe that it's not something that's attainable. It's just a question of putting our resources in the right um, directions. Great, great answer. Yeah. All right, John, you're going to have to figure out how to, how to, how to follow that. <laughs> I was happy Susan's answering first so I could think about it, but now I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Matt, you asked the question, is this, is this becoming sort of mainstream? Do people know about this, this idea of a circular economy? And to me, I feel like the best outcome is that we get to a circular economy without everyone knowing what it is, right? Like well, in some ways, one of the poison pills of, of sustainability and green is that people have weaponized it, right? And so like, what I would love to see is, you know, companies and governments start to design the systems that lead us towards circular economy, whether that's, you know, new products, new business models, new policy, but that, you know, people don't necessarily know that they're shifting, right? There's going to be, there's going to be some change in behavior that's required. Um, but I think, I think making it as easy as possible at least with these early wins is going to make it a lot more palatable for people long-term. Um, and I think there's opportunities to make it uh, sort of for lack of a better way to put it fun, right? Like uh, you know, you can, you can develop a, an attachment with a certain product or service if it's higher quality, if it's fun, if it's cool. And I don't think anybody feels that way about like kids toy packaging right now. Right. It, it drives everybody nuts. And so there's an opportunity here to make a better system. And I think some companies are thinking that way, but it's just a matter of like getting over that initial hump of, of, you know, oh, this is how we do it now. And we've been successful and we've got market share. And it's like, no, we need to think about, you know, how do you, how do you maintain, you know, viability long-term? That's just not something we're doing right now. And so Again, my best outcome would be that this starts to get implemented in ways that the average consumer may not even know. Um, they can just fit it into their lives the way they're doing it now. And in 10 years, we look back and say, oh, man, can you believe that that kid's toy used to come with plastic, cardboard, you know, all things that I had to figure out how to recycle or throw away, um, th that eventually that's just gone. Uh, and I, I think there's an opportunity um, if we do this right. 
Yeah, hundred hundred percent. I mean, I I think that that what I'm excited about is that you know, over time, you just start to walk down the aisle of the grocery store, the convenience store, and you just start to see more things and reusable, refillable packaging. And then the way that that you you get rid of all those containers is just seamless. Like, it's just, oh, okay, yeah. you know, I just put this in, in the recycling or, oh, okay, the UPS guy's coming. I'm just going to leave this in the bin on the front porch. Just, you know, again, none of this stuff is rocket science, but you know, if we if we get more to, to that that idea that you were talking about, Suze, of this you know collaboration and and uh, the, the ecosystem and and getting getting corporations to work together, you know, with government, public private partnerships, you know, public private funding, you know, to build out these new ways of doing things. I mean, I think that's really what it's going to take to make this the new normal. So, guys, I got to say, this has been one of the most fun conversations I think I've had on this podcast since I started doing this, and uh, I can't wait to do it again. Again, um, you know, but where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're up to, and how, how can they uh, how can they connect with you? Yeah, uh, well, first off, greenbiz.com. Um, that's g r e e n b i z dot com is uh, your landing page for all things <laughs> all things us. Um, the main page is where you'll see all of our editorial content. We've got a great editorial team that covers not just things in the circular economy, but as John was mentioning at the top across, um, four major markets that cover sustainability, climate technology, and, um, uh, green finance, uh, and a variety of other things in between. And then as far as our events and stuff that are specifically circular economy, if you go to greenbiz.com slash events, you'll see a roster of our, of our upcoming annual conferences. Uh, we have them, again, across those four markets. And Circularity uh, 23 will be coming again in Seattle. I'm going to forget the dates. John, help me out. It's June, June 5th through the 7th. Fifth through the seventh. So we'd love to love to see you there. I'll be there. Um, if you if you again go to that website, greenbiz.com slash events, you can find the the landing page for circularity twenty-three and you can subscribe for updates when uh, you know tickets will go on sale, when speaker nomination windows are open, if anyone out there is interested in speaking at the event. And there you'll also be able to subscribe to our weekly circularity newsletter um, that John and I and our colleague Deanna uh, and our editorial team help put out every week. Big, big plug for the newsletter and for circularity. Uh, I will I will definitely be there in June. Encourage encourage you all to to to, to think about coming up and attending and and definitely get on Green Business uh, uh, circularity newsletter if you're interested in this work. Yeah, and Seattle and Seattle in June. Can't beat that. Can't. <laughs> and we'll be, you know, deep diving into how that reuse system is, is going. So more to learn, I'm sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining, guys, and look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Likewise. Pleasure. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway.